Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you so much for joining us on BC Podcast. Here's a message to encourage your heart this week. So this is us actually back in the fall at the Greenbrier. I wanted to use a picture from years ago just because I, I like looking younger, um, but they didn't go for that for some, for some reason. But this is Stephanie on the far left. That's my wife. Uh, you've probably seen her roaming the halls, uh, serving downstairs. That is her heart is to serve uh, bright red hair, lots of freckles, hard to miss her. And then this is uh, the, the joy of our life in the middle. That is Annalise. She is six, and she is going on 16 or 26. We haven't figured that out yet. Uh, she is an, an absolute mess, uh, but we, we love her and we are thankful for her. And uh, I am thankful to be with you this morning and get to uh, administer the Word of God to our hearts. And so we come to 2 Timothy chapter 2. That's where we are. That's our uh, text for today. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be studying the first 10 verses of 2 Timothy 2 as we see the marks of a strong multiplying church. And so we arrive at a text this morning in which we find a young pastor. His name is Timothy. And Timothy has been called to do some really, really hard things. Timothy, a lot of times, gets a bad rap, but he was Paul's go-to guy. In fact, he's been sent into several situations. He's basically, Paul has been up until now, Paul's representative to several churches. He's even been sent into uh, areas with heavy persecution, and now he's being asked to do the hard thing of being pastor in Ephesus, where there was a plague, an outbreak, if you will, of false teaching. And so Paul then encourages Timothy to kind of step in with both feet, if you will, as we see today that multiplication has one foot in grace and one foot in hardship. And so I want to begin this morning by just defining some terms. These are words that I'm going to use over and over and over again throughout our study. Maybe you'd say, hey, I'm new to the way of Jesus, so I could really use this. Maybe you'd say, I'm not so new to the way of Jesus, but hey, I'm always up for a refresher course. The first word is disciple. The word disciple refers to a student or an apprentice. So basically, a disciple then is a follower in context, a follower of Jesus. A side note about this, because there's a, a very troubling thing, a very troubling phenomenon, you could say, in our world, in our culture, that so many have come to believe that one can be a Christian without being like Jesus, a follower who doesn't follow. And so we'll often pick and choose pieces and parts that we like about Jesus, or I like that about his teaching, and I like what he says here, and then I, I'm not necessarily a big fan of this, so I'll insert my own way, or I'll insert humanism in its place to kind of make up the rest of the pie. We'll add Bible verses to our Instagram bio, we'll buy some gear, we'll drop his name when it suits. Folks, that's not a disciple. According to Luke 6.40, it is impossible to be a disciple of someone and not end up like that person. Amen? Jesus is not a fad. He's not a trend. He is majesty. He is the Son of God. He is life. He is love. So then a discipler is a follower or an apprentice of Jesus. And then there's multiply and multiplication, the idea of our sermon this morning from the very start, God's design for disciples of Jesus, according to Matthew 28, is to make disciples who make disciples, who make followers, who make apprentices, who make disciples until the gospel is spread to all peoples and to all tribes and tongues and nations. And then obviously there is 
the gospel itself. The gospel is simply this. It is the good news. The good news of what? The good news that Jesus paid it all. It is the greatest news that the world has ever heard, the world has ever known. And so these are our terms for today. I trust that these prove helpful. Let's go to the throne room together in prayer, and then we'll get into our text. God, I am weak, and you are strong. Thankfully, we know from Scripture that you prefer to use weak people because it accentuates your strength, it accentuates your glory. It is only by your Holy Spirit that this sermon will be able to sing and to dance, and so I pray that you would humble our hearts to receive your word. Make us more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Again, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 2. We begin in verse 1 by seeing that we are to step into grace. Again, so that motion of stepping into something, we're stepping into grace here. What grace is that? That is the saving grace of Jesus in which his work on our behalf enables us to stand at the foot of the cross and admit like that 18th century beautiful hymn, Rock of Ages, that there is nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. It is only by the grace of Jesus that we are able to stand at all. It's an interesting thing, perhaps because the popularity of this, uh, of this chapter, maybe the first, or, or I would say verses 2 through 10 maybe, but for whatever reason, verse number 1 often gets overlooked. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to begin by kind of taking a brief but deep dive into, chapter, or into verse 1, rather, because I believe there's some really profound implications for Christians here. And so here's what I'm going to do. As I read our text, it'll seem a little chopped up. I'm going to read, then I'm going to stop and explain just for context and clarity, all right? So he writes, this is Paul writing in verse 1 of chapter 2, you then, my child, okay, so Timothy is Paul's son in the faith. They've been together for a long time. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace, again, that is the saving grace that then becomes the sustaining grace in the life of the Christian, by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I invite you to look at chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, or it's on the screen as well, Verse number seven, for God gave us a spirit, this is the Holy Spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And then in verse 14, he writes, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So Paul then is likely referring to the strengthening effect of the Holy Spirit when he tells Timothy to be strong. And I don't want us to think that this is some just a uh, passive Christian catchphrase that Paul is telling Timothy here, because Paul is currently relying on the same exact strength that he's saying, Timothy, I want you to be strong with this strength, because I'm currently doing it. I'm writing from prison. I'm writing from chains, in, in chains. Nero is the boss right now. There's a good chance I'm about to be sentenced to death. So in essence, he's saying to Timothy, my guy, my son in the faith, you can do this. I know you're experiencing hardship. Things are actually going to get worse before they get better, but God's got you because the same Holy Spirit that is enabling me right now is the same Holy Spirit that will enable you to have this strength. And so Paul, well accustomed to this kind of pain, both that Timothy was experiencing and that he was about to experience, says, be strong, my brother in Christ, my son in the faith, and then he instructs him to share that faith. 
still in the invitation to step into grace. Look at verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men. The NIV here uses reliable people. The NASB uses faithful people who will be able to teach others also. And so it is here that we get this multiplying effect of the gospel. And by the way, in many ways, this is almost identical to Matthew chapter 28. Make disciples entrust to faithful people. This isn't a suggestion it is a command. Just a little peep inside of the Bandy household this morning. You might enjoy these. You might not enjoy them. They might scare you. But uh, just, to give you a, <laughs> just to give you a little peep this morning, and, and for those of you who know my wife and I well, you already know this. This is no, not news to you. My wife and I have vastly different personalities. We tend to see the world in very different ways. I see the world in grayscale. Okay, so it's kind of like a nice canvas that is begging me to come out and make my own colors. It's a beautiful world, and you're invited. And then there's my wife who sees things more plainly, more clearly. She sees things in black and white. She is uh, pragmatic. I'll just say this. She has all of the common sense in our relationship. But me, my middle name is Nuance. I swear if it wasn't for me trying to always explain how things are actually more complicated than they really are, I don't think my wife and I would ever fight. That and choosing where to eat on the weekends, right? <laughs> Some of you are like, amen. Yes, I empathize with you. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Notebook in which Ryan Gosling looks at his significant other and he's like, tell me what you want. Just tell me. Okay, that's, that's me on Friday night. Tell me where you want to eat. Just tell me. I'm like, baby, I make decisions for a living. By Friday night, I'm tapped out, all right? So you choose. I really don't care. When I say I don't care, I really don't care. By the way, I did just reference the notebook. Please, if you've seen that, don't think I enjoyed that movie. I did not. <laughs> it's not really my type. I'm more a gladiator, braveheart kind of guy. Amen. <laughs> but there is no nuance here. It is black and white. Multiplication is a mandate. It's a mission. We are either fulfilling it or we are failing it. There's no two ways to cut it. Timothy's own family was a beautiful example of multiplication. I love, I love this example. In chapter 1, Paul indicates that Timothy's grandmother, Lois, was radically converted. And you want to know what Lois did with that? She then turned around and she shared the gospel with Eunice, her daughter. And Eunice was radically converted. And you want to know what Eunice did with that? She then turned around with Lois, and they both shared the gospel with Timothy, and here we are. It's really not that hard. I, I feel like we, we seem to overcomplicate so many things in Christianity. Some think we need books and strategies and conferences and articles and everything else on God's green earth in order to accept the call, step into grace, and multiply. That simply is not true. We just share we share the gospel just like Lois, just like Eunice, just like last week. Missionary John Page brought a wonderful message. It was so challenging. Cut my heart. If you remember, he asked us the question, who is that person that you are going to share the gospel with? Have you prayed and asked God to send someone into your life? A commitment to multiplication can be used by God in absolutely amazing ways. When I say the word, or I say the name John Calvin, most of us don't think 
multiplication. We don't think church planting. We think doctrine and theology and Middle Ages and all that. But actually, it's said that John Calvin spent the last decade of his life honed in on this idea of multiplication. And so from the years 1555 to 1559, there were 100 new churches planted in the country of France. Over the course of the next five years, there were over 2,000 churches planted in France. Some of these churches had eight to 9,000 people attending, and all of this was happening while they were under heavy persecution from the Catholic Church, which actually makes me wonder, is that why they exploded the way they did? When our desires begin to align with God's desires and our motivation is right and it is pure, very, very, very big things can happen. In high school, I lived in Ireland. Uh, my dad pastored a church about 45 minutes west of Dublin. And for the first six, first six months of my time in Ireland, uh, I did not fit in because I didn't want to fit in. I didn't want to be there. My heart was not in it. It was not my home. I never wanted to move there in the first place. But after about, like I said, six to eight months, the Holy Spirit really began to get a hold of my heart, and I very quickly became to view Ireland as my home. And so wanting to fit in, summertime was rolling in, and I decided it would be a good idea for me to join a summer basketball league. Okay, this was a, a bunch of guys. It was, it's a league uh, that came from the Catholic school, so basically all of the guys were Irish, and then there was me. But there I was. I showed up on day one. I had my headband on. I had my arm sleeve on because, you know, arm sleeves make you shoot way better and all that. There I was, okay? And these guys welcomed me. I was American. They were fascinated with me simply because I was, I think that's the only reason that they were fascinated with me is because I was American. I'll never forget this. You're going to get a kick out of this. I will never forget them calling me Kobe Bryant. <laughs> now, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear I'm white, first of all. Second of all, I'm five foot eight. That's on a good day, probably after I've stretched, and I'm wearing shoes. And thirdly, they learned the hard way that I was not Kobe Bryant because they thought it would be a good idea to hit me on a fast break wide open. There's nobody around, and I miss a wide open layup. I'm like, oh my gosh, I just want to make them proud. Like, I, I want to be accepted. This is my first impression, some first impression that was, because I looked like Mike Bibby and I had the skill set of George Costanza. It was absolutely ridiculous. I would, I would get invited to their gatherings. They were, they were nice boys, but I didn't fit in. They knew I didn't fit in, and it hurt because I wanted to be in. I wanted to be accepted. My crew actually ended up being a, a group of Filipino and Polish and South African dudes who were like three times my age. And, you know, I, I love these guys. They love me, and I was thankful for them. We were kind of like our own little club of misfits, if you will. A few weeks later, we started scrimmaging with the girls' team, and I met this extroverted girl named Shauna O'Donnell. It doesn't get much, much more Irish than Shauna O'Donnell, right? Shauna O'Donnell. And she and I very quickly became close friends. She did not see my lack of Irish blood as a turnoff. So I began to invite her to hang out with me and, and my family, which then turned into me inviting her to hang out with uh, my church family, which at the time was just a, a little small house church. And I remember her showing up with me that first, that first day, and she was so anxious, she was so overdressed, but I'll never forget the way that our little church just loved all over her. Shauna started attending regularly, so I gave her a Bible. 
And she started to read that Bible in all of her spare time. And she would bust out her flip phone and text me on my flip phone. And I thought I was awesome. I thought I was super cool because I just graduated from the little Nokia phones that light up on the side. So I was like, oh man, here we go. And uh, so we would, we would go back and forth on scripture. It was so good for me because it forced me to kind of delve into scripture myself. And really because of that, it was only a matter of weeks that Shauna then sensed the, 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 the drawing effect of the Holy Spirit and she asked me to lead her to Jesus. I'm telling you guys, that girl fell madly in love with Jesus. She immediately wanted to be baptized, but her family said, no way, Jose, that's where we draw the line. You were baptized as a little child in the Catholic Church. The last thing that we're gonna let happen is for this group of Protestants over here to baptize you. That's not gonna happen. And so we began to pray. A lot of time passed, they wouldn't let up until it was about time for me to return to the States. My visa was about to expire. I didn't wanna come back, but I was 18, I had to. And you know what? They finally relented. They finally relented. Shauna was baptized. It was actually one of the last things that I saw in Ireland before I came back to the States. And she wasn't just baptized, her entire family showed up and we threw a party like you would not imagine. Today marks 15 years since my time with Shauna. Over a decade and a half later, Shauna is faithfully serving God. She's married to a man who loves Jesus with all his heart. She has kids, and she is still plugged in to that same little church that we were both a part of all those years ago in Nasneria, to the glory of God. Step into grace, share the faith, watch the miracles that God will do. Secondly, step into hardship. Verse number three, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So this is what we know as a pastoral epistle. Paul is writing to a young pastor whom he knew would suffer, but this is not limited to pastoral suffering at all. He makes that clear in the following verses. Let's read on. Beginning in verse four, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. How many of you served in the armed forces or currently serve? Would you raise your hand? Raise it really high because I want to see you. Okay, first of all, thank you. I admire you. But you know, especially good and well, the danger of distraction, don't you? And so Paul says, Timothy, shun distractions, pay attention to Jesus, stay engaged, don't get distracted. Which I think is a timely word for our day. Because I believe that we are living in perhaps the most distracted society that our world has ever known. I'll be honest with you, I disable, or at least I try to disable notifications on my phone every night. That way I can kind of allow them back into my life on my own terms in the morning. You might be thinking, oh my gosh, he's only 32. Wow, what discipline. Like he really has this lick. No, just wait, okay? Because each and every morning I start that coffee pot and I sit down and do my quiet time. The temptation to open Twitter, especially now that Elon is in charge, <laughs> or the temptation to open email, or Facebook, et cetera, it is real, and y'all know exactly what I'm talking about, right? And then there are the distractions that we knowingly step into. So many of us, I'll speak to my bracket, parents, so many of us are wanting our kids to become the next who's who and the next what's what. Too many times, we'll do everything short of discipling them in order to see them succeed as if raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is a lesser calling. That is rubbish. 
I think that sometimes there is God's mission for our lives, and then there's our mission for our lives. And so the best thing that we can do sometimes is pause and take a step back and evaluate and reevaluate and make sure that our will is aligning with his will. And then there's the athlete in verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Again, he's addressing all Christians in this illustration. The NIV says, anyone who competes. So Paul makes it very clear here that Christian life, it is not a leisure activity. There are no spectators. On that, folks, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be frank with you. It absolutely breaks my heart that so many Christians today can sing, I am no longer a slave to fear, yet they're terrified to go to church. It breaks my heart that so many can say, I stand with Ukraine, but they haven't been able to stand with a local church. The Christian life is not for spectators. Moving on now to verse 6, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So in the same way a farmer reaps the harvest, so too a believer who experiences hardship for the sake of Jesus will reap a harvest of blessing. And then verse 7, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. He says, consider it, Timothy, prayerfully consider this wisdom and be strong in the grace of Jesus. There are pains that are unique to pastoral ministry, sure, but there are pains that are unique to being a follower of Jesus in general, especially when we're living life on mission, especially when we're making multiplication a priority. It's important to remember that there are different degrees to hardship. We often think in extremes, we think of Fox's Book of Martyrs. How many of you have ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? Okay, if you've read it or you know anything about it, you know it's both beautiful and terrible all the same. Okay, uh, believe it or not, my dad thought he loved me so much. As a kid, he thought it would be a good idea to read this to me as my bedtime stories. Again, like little Ryan, five, six, seven years old, learning about listening to <laughs> listening about martyrs right before I go to sleep, and we wonder why I still struggle with nightmares. Thank you, Dad. Or people losing their heads for their faith. These are real examples. And while they do happen, I think that contextualizing hardship to our own lives makes a little bit more sense. It looks a little different. It probably looks like rejection. Maybe it looks like the splitting of a family. Or what about spiritual attacks. Those are real. I'm going to share a little bit of my story. I was actually hesitant to share what I'm about to share because it's still raw. It's, it's ongoing. This is anything but a success story. It was or has been at, at times very, very embarrassing to me. But some of our team, the same team that has been loving me through this, the same team that's been encouraging me through this, encouraged me to share because it, it just fits what we're talking about in a, in a unique way. I've long had a battle in my mind. It started years ago with insomnia. Insomniacs in here, you can certainly empathize with what I'm saying. Um, I know a lot of you will probably relate to this. I couldn't turn my mind off at night. There was a time where I went several days without sleep, and there was, during this period of time, I thought I was losing my mind. I thought I was going crazy. Most recently, within the past several months, I started having episodes, and these episodes looked like basically the world just kind of caving in on me. Everything would start to get dark. I, I would feel like I was getting trapped, like there was no way out. I would wake up in panic mode. I, I still do at times. 
wake up in a, a, a sheer panic, and I don't even, there's no explanation for it. Just, just heart beating out of my chest, scared to death. One night, I was eating uh, steak with my wife and daughter at the table at our house, and for whatever reason, out of nowhere, my peripheral vision was gone. My wife, Steph, she was holding up numbers next to my head, and how many fingers am I holding up? I don't know. I can't, can't really see anything. You can only see Annalise, who was sitting directly across from me. For months, I've been struggling with coming up with words. I've been struggling with my memory, memory loss, short-term memory loss. So much so, Stephanie will ask me about something that happened the day before, and I'm say, I'm sorry, babe, I, <laughs> I don't remember. Um, so last week, I go in for an MRI uh, on my brain, and of course, I've got all the worst possible scenarios running through my head, like, what if, what if something's there that is not supposed to be there? Or what about my family? Like, what about my girls? And then many of you know how this works. Like, these thoughts spiral into a thousand other thoughts. The good news is that the scan came back great. There's nothing up there. There's nothing in my noggin that doesn't belong in my noggin. But the bad news is that absolutely none of this made sense to me. No answers. Until two days later, my, my family doctor walks in. He said, what's up, Ryan? How you doing, man? So here's the deal. There's still plenty of this that I cannot explain, and so I'm still referring you to the neurologist. You're not getting out of that one. But what I can say with certainty is that you have an issue with anxiety, a very, very big issue with anxiety, so much so that you are basically a, ball, a big ball of anxiety walking around. That wasn't real helpful to me at the time, because I grew up believing that mental illness was just a weak mindset, and you just power through it, and you just get over it and push through. The problem is I wasn't getting over it. I was getting worse. So I began reading after Christian authors and therapists, biblical counselors, etc., who helped me see it's not a mindset. It's a sickness. Just like a broken bone needs treatment, so too a sick mind needs medicine. It's simple. But I just couldn't understand why now. The timing doesn't make sense. I just now, uh, ministerially speaking, I, I, I feel like my head is just now coming above water. I can start to see things. My leadership team has just doubled, and they're taking the pressure off me. Why now this doesn't make sense? Until it made sense. I began to look over what has happened since my symptoms became severe. Multiple students had come to Christ. I had just recently baptized half a dozen converts. We had just multiplied by launching a Bible study on the campus of George Washington High School. God had just added to my team some of the most incredible leaders that I've ever seen and met in my life. I was hearing people in other towns and other parts of the state, even in other states, talking about our student ministry, both middle school and high school. An amazing person and a friend, a wonderful friend, Someone on my team, her name is Amy, we were talking about this last week, and she said plainly, Ryan, you are on mission, you are doing what God created you to do, and you are under attack, bro. You're under attack. The enemy is ticked. He wants you distracted, and I was. He wants you to feel overwhelmed, and I have felt overwhelmed. He wants you to shut down, and to be honest with you folks, I've been pretty close lately. And then she combated perhaps the number one lie of Satan. She said, Ryan, you are not alone. 
You are not alone. Maybe someone here needs to hear that today. You are not alone. You are not alone. Hardship manifests itself in a plethora of ways. Don't be blind to spiritual attacks like I was. And don't you ever believe the lie that you are alone. If you belong to this spiritual family, I can personally guarantee you, you are not alone. I want to invite you to join me in one final encouragement as we step into grace, as we step into hardship, and that it's all for and all about Jesus. We don't step anywhere without Jesus. Remember Jesus. Look at verse 8 through 10. This is massive. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. These are all of God's people in all times, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul says, Timothy, you want to know why I want you to be strong? Why I told you to be strong back in verse 1? This is why. Because Jesus. Why am I suffering? Why am I bound in chains? Son, I'm not asking you to do anything that I'm not already willing to do or anything that I'm not already doing. It's all for Jesus. This is so much bigger than you. This is so much bigger than me. That they, all disciples of Jesus, past, present, and future, all of these can experience the grace that I talked about back in verse number 1. Remember Jesus. It's all too easy for us to turn our processes inward and make them all about us. Then again, I think a lot of times we prefer everything to be about us. For preachers, it can be in our preaching, trying to earn the acceptance and praise of others. You say, why are you preaching so hard at me? Because I'm not preaching at you, I'm preaching at me. Trying to earn the acceptance and praise of others in the way that we handle the Word of God. Feeling this nonsensical pressure to prove ourselves when at the end of the day, there's only one to please. His name is Jesus. Preachers, remember Jesus. For leaders, it can be in our leading. The desire to lead, to build into others, as to leave some sort of legacy of our own. That's when it's become about us. It can't be about us. Remember Jesus. As parents... The temptation to make it an us versus them thing, my parenting style trumps your parenting style, the way that we correct our children, the food that we feed our children, and on and on and on until we have suffocated from our homes true discipleship. Remember Jesus, and while we're remembering Him, also remember that comparison is the death of your joy. You want to kiss your joy goodbye and just start comparing as members of a local church, we can find our identity in a church name. We can find our identity in serving to the point where we look around and we begin to judge those who aren't giving what we're giving. They aren't doing what we're doing. They're not serving as hard as we're serving. Again, that's when it's become about us. Remember Jesus. As a church that multiplies, if we aren't careful, we can become obsessed with the process itself instead of being obsessed with Jesus. Let me say it again. We can become obsessed with the process itself instead of being obsessed with Jesus. We can create partnerships and launch extensions of our ministry. We can plant churches all over the state, making Bible Center the premier church experience in the state. And it is possible to do all of these things while forgetting Jesus. May this never be said of us. It is all about Jesus. Remember Jesus. 
everything that I've just listed, they are all good things. They are wonderful things. But it is possible to love each and every one of them while failing to love Jesus. So Paul says, remember Jesus, Timothy. Remember Jesus, Ryan. Remember Jesus, Bible sitter. Remember Jesus. Step into grace. Give away your faith. Don't hoard it. Share it. Give it away. Multiply. Step into what God calls you to, which at times includes the hard things, and remember Jesus. And because multiplication has one foot in grace and one foot in hardship. My hope in closing, my hope for you personally with this idea of multiplication is that you would disciple your kids, that you would love your families to Jesus, whatever stage of life you may be in, that you would build the kind of relationships at work, with your family, at home, at the gym, that organically lead to discussions about Jesus and his church. And then my hope for us as a church family is that we become passionate that we become passionate about seeing our state and our country and our world saturated with the gospel, and then we don't just be passionate about it, that we do something about it until all people have heard of the hope of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would forgive me for my lack of multiplication thinking. In the way that sometimes I enter the workplace or I enter life in general, or I enter the gym and I, I'm not thinking intentionally, I'm just coasting. And Father, I pray this prayer for all of us that this could not be said of us, that Bible Center would be an intentional church that multiplies, that wants to see, that desires to see the entire world, all people groups, all tribes, all nations come to know the glory of God, to see your hope. Father, I pray that you would take your word and do with it what only you can do, and that is to change and convict hearts and minds with your truth, with the truth of the gospel. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com and give us a follow on all platforms at Bible Center.